This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. song to Hill Street Blues. This is a a birthday bumper music request from my step-cousin, Stephen Filaramo, who is celebrating his birthday today. Happy birthday, Stephen. Stephen's a big listener to the show. He even came down and uh, hung out with us one uh, one day. A great guy and uh, wishing you the best and hope all your birthday wishes come true today. Stephen. Hey, uh, hopefully one of his wishes is to hear from one of the best informed science and health reporters of all time. I have been enjoying the work of Donald G. McNeil Jr. for literally decades. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. He's a veteran journalist who was the science and health reporter for the New York Times, where he covered all sorts of epidemics, including HIV and COVID. His latest book is The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Donald, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you for inviting me. And and happy birthday to your cousin. I'm old enough to remember the Hill Street Blues very fondly, too. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. You guys are kindred spirits. Uh, uh, I'll try and get you an invite to his uh, party if he's having one. So um, <laughs> Mine's in two weeks to turn 70. Oh, great. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll let you pick bumper music in two weeks. The um, the late Your latest book is The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. What inspired you to write this? Uh, what are you hoping people take away from this? I, I would imagine after leaving the Times, there's a portion of you that could have just used a rest and said, all right, let me just catch up on on uh, golf or whatever it is you like to do, maybe some uh, vacations that you've been postponing for a quarter century. You clearly put a lot of work into this book. Why? What are you hoping people get out of this? Um, well, it's it's it's. Parts of it are memoirs, so in some ways I'm telling the story of, of sort of the most adventurous parts of my life, like things like, you know, almost being kidnapped in a guerrilla hunting village in mm-hmm. Cameroon and stuff. But most of it is really about just, you know, we've just gone through one of the worst pandemics in 100 years in this country. I mean, more people died in this pandemic than died in anything since 1918. And I, I was trying to say, look, there are patterns to pandemics, and we could have seen this coming, and, and we saw happen again what we'd seen many times before the denialism, the fatalism, the rumors that just sort of cripple our response, the lies, the people who profit from telling lies in the, during the middle of pandemics, and also the sort of uh, polarization that happens sometimes in countries. And, and I, I talk about ha- that having happened. Well, I go back as far as the plague of Athens and the plague of Justinian back at, you know, back in, uh, in some cases in, into uh, the BC era. But I also go into, uh, you know, what happened in 1918, what happened during AIDS, what happened during the 
very unimportant H1N1 swine flu uh, pandemic of 2009, what happened with SARS and, and lots of other diseases, and sort of try to pluck the common threads. And I guess if I've got an audience in my mind, it's mostly I'm thinking about future future heads of the CDC or whatever replaces it. That's another argument I make. You know, people who are now in medical school or in public health school, and I'm trying to hope they think about winning, you know, fewer people dying. That's really the biggest thrust of my book is we've got to do this so that fewer people die. I think we could have lost half as many people in this pandemic as we did, but we failed because of bad leadership and, and polarization and all these other factors I talked about. What And if people just tuning in, we're talking with Donald G. McNeil Jr., author of The Wisdom of Plagues, uh, Lessons from uh, 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. It's out now. Get it wherever books are available. One of the things that you talk about is at the uh, dawn of the pandemic, some top scientists misled you when you were trying to check out rumors that the virus might have escaped from a Chinese lab. Two-part question here, Donald. One, why did these scientists mislead you? And two, do you have a belief at this point in terms of whether or not this virus did escape from a lab? I I think this is still one of the big unanswered questions we're going to face, like... You know, did Cuba have anything to do with the killing of Kennedy or was Alger Hiss actually a Soviet spy? That is not going to be answered until an authoritarian state opens its files, China in this case. Mm-hmm. And I don't really expect that to happen in my lifetime. If you if you ask, if you push me to the wall and say, what do you think is more likely? I think given all the evidence I've looked at, I think it is more likely that it was a spillover in the market rather than a, leak, a lab from a leak. I oh, know this is incredibly polarization, incredibly polarizing. And I'm one of the people who, you know, back in 2021, wrote an article saying we need to look at the lab leak theory more carefully. It's not the crazy conspiracy theory that it seemed in the beginning, because more was going on inside the labs in China than we knew back at the beginning. But the fact that some scientists got together and lied at the beginning of the pandemic to mislead me doesn't change my feelings about that. There was a lot of confusion, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic. And some of this I had actually forgotten because I don't have access to my New York Times emails anymore that I had raised these questions with a couple of scientists individually back at the very beginning. Is there any way to tell if this virus has been manipulated in the lab? Are there any hallmarks of lab manipulation that get left? Because I didn't know at the time. Um, and I did not know that four of these scientists were actually together on a on a um, Slack channel and they were comparing notes. Hey, did you get an email from Donald McNeil? Yeah, I did. How are we going to answer him? And, you know, one of the this all leaked out from a Republican controlled subcommittee back in this, this past July. One of the one of the Slack chat things says Don McNeil pretty much nailed it. Let's not tell him. Wow. And. And it would be possible to insert 12 base pairs to put in a fur and cleavage site. Yeah, but I didn't tell them that. So why did they decide to do that? I think, one, they weren't sure, and they didn't want to say something they weren't sure about. Two, they didn't want to give ammunition to the people who are dead set against any kind of gain of function. Donald, just because uh, we're still on terrestrial radio. It's okay. I'm sorry. I'm quote. I'm quoting. Gotcha. But, but, gotcha. All right. So, it, very bad reactions would emerge if uh, if uh, anybody serious said China had you know had leaked this virus out to the world. Those were the three things that kept them from uh, from 
t- uh, telling me the truth. You also the truth, the truth was just their fears. They didn't have any evidence, and they ultimately changed their mind and decided that it was not a lab leak; it was a natural spillover. But at the time, because of this thing called the furin cleavage site, which is a it's basically part of the spike protein that it, that makes it attached to human cells. Because that existed in the virus, they thought maybe it didn't exist in nature and it might have been implanted. You also describe um, trying to get your colleagues at the New York Times to believe you that a pandemic was coming. One, how were you so certain? I know you've been at this for a long time and there are certain patterns, but how were you so certain that there was going to be a pandemic of this magnitude that was coming? And why did your New York Times colleagues take so much convincing? Um, Well, for me, it was the numbers that in the beginning, there were these reports out of China about uh, uh, pneumonias of unknown origin. And then it turned out it was a coronavirus. And we know that coronaviruses can spread quickly between people, but they don't normally, the two that we know about before, SARS and MERS, did not spread easily between people. So they didn't go pandemic. But I was following the numbers and it went from 300 cases with no deaths to a thousand something cases with 12 deaths. And then suddenly the numbers came out 10,000 cases, 200 deaths. And I was sitting on the subway just after that had come out that day and thinking, oh my God, you know. A rapid, fast-moving virus with a 2% lethality rate is exactly what happened in 1918, is, is, is that this virus is, is not going to be un, come under control the way SARS and MERS did because there, were, there was slow transmission. This is going to rocket all over the place. And any virus that goes around the world and kills 2% of the people who get it is going to kill millions and millions and millions of people. Now, as it turns out, you know, this isn't 1918, and we have all sorts of things like oxygen and ventilators and, and drugs and a bunch of vaccines. And so the ultimate death toll was more like one third of one percent. But had this been 1918, this actually would have been a worse virus than the, than mm. the flu of 1918. It would have had a, a death rate of probably 10 percent. Um, you know, if we'd never invented vaccines and we'd never and we'd never had bottled oxygen, oxygen and, and the other things we've had, this this would have been worse than 1918. So so anyway, I, I mean, so I came into work the next day going, this is it. This is the big one. Now, there have been times in the past when I thought this might be the big one, when H5N1, the avian flu, was was going around the world pretty quickly in um, in 2005 and six. Um, I wrote a I wrote a sort of an interview with a doctor who thought it might be the big one and thought that we ought to prepare for it. We did make vaccines for it. They're not distributed, but they're made. And so, you know, my editors were a little wary of letting me go mm-hmm. out there and say, this is it, the whole world's going to die. And, they, and my editor actually said, look, you've got to talk to a lot of scientists before you can say that in the pages of the New York Times. And I went, okay, I will call, you know, everybody I know who's fought other pandemics and, and talk to them. And I did a, basically a poll of, of, you know, a bunch of the scientists I do. And, and of the dozen I talked to, it was eight said yes, two said no, and two didn't want to commit. Um, and so I had the scorecard. One of the eight was Tony Fauci, who was not, you know, at the time was sort of the world's AIDS hero rather than the controversial person that people have made him now. And mm-hmm. he said, look, I'm going into the White House at this moment. You've called me. I am on a cell phone, um, you know, to find out, to, to, to talk about this. Yeah, I am very worried about this. And so I wrote that story. But that story didn't even make page one. It was on page 12 because, <laughs> uh, you know, th- th- I mean, there was another story about what was going on in China on page sure. one that day. But, yeah, I mean, there was doubt. And, and, and many people just didn't believe me. And, you know, this is... This was um, 
early, late January. This is February 2nd that I wrote that story. And nobody in New York really began to believe that this was this was going to happen until, you know, the beginning of March when and, and we, we were all told to stay home starting in the middle of March. And there was a lot of skepticism. You know, I mean, the mayor didn't want to cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade. Um, I forget the name of the player for the Utah Jazz who was asked about, do you think the basketball season is going to be canceled? They wiped his hands all over the players, the reporters' microphones to say, you know, ha, 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 you know, deadly virus. Everybody was not taking it seriously except for a few crazy coots like me. So you mentioned Dr. Fauci. Obviously, Dr. Fauci was uh, a pretty critical player in the uh, fight against the HIV and AIDS epidemic. You cover that in this book. From your perspective, uh, what were the key differences in how both governments and the media treated the HIV and AIDS situation compared to COVID? Well, remember, at the beginning of AIDS, Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS for five years, uh, four years. I mean, AIDS was noticed in 1981 when it struck in both Los Angeles and uh, New York simultaneously. But Ronald Reagan never mentioned AIDS, never talked about it until 1985 after his friend Rock Hudson, mm-hmm. um, you know, whom everybody thought was in his publicist said he was dying of liver cancer. But he went to France for treatment and his publicist there for some reason said, no, he's actually here for treatment of AIDS. And that kind of changed the whole perspective of AIDS. Um, you know, somebody like me who'd grown up in San Francisco had seen people walking down the street as walking skeletons dying, uh, but but there was no discussion of it from from the government um, because there was a lot of belief that well whatever this happening is God's revenge on homosexuals and drug users, and uh, and it, it it doesn't concern me and it doesn't concern anybody I know and I don't know anybody who's gay. Um, people would even use the word gay at the time, but uh, you know I don't know anybody who's one of them with their was people's attitude and they they just believed it was different. So the, the denialism was, is an enormous part of any response to a disease. That one was a much more slow moving one. In this case, you know there was denialism in the beginning when when Nancy Messonnier of the CDC tried to say, look, it's a question, not a question of if but when this disease comes out of China. The stock market dropped about a thousand points that night. President Trump was very upset and he tried to talk the stock market back up because it was at the time sort of the way he measured his presidency. And he, and he was angry. He was on his way back from India and, and Nancy Messonnier was shut up uh, after that. And then he went back and forth in the beginning, you know, first saying that this is nothing. It's just going to wash through it. It's going to disappear by summer. And then as he began to you know talk to his advisors and they began to say, no, no, this is serious and it's going to lead to 2 million dead by October, then he responded by saying, okay, we'll have 15 days to stop the spread. And we had what he thought was going to be just a 15-day pause. But then after it became clear that it was not going to be just 15 days and it would be all over, then he turned against the idea of the very lockdowns that he had started and said, well, we've got to get the country open by by uh, May 30th, by Memorial Day, the, um, you know, the cure is worse than the disease. And, uh, and, and, you know, and then went deeper and deeper into dialogue with, with the fighting against masks and fighting against uh, lockdowns and, and, and believing it was all a giant plot to keep him from, from being reelected again. And that's where you had the big split in the country. You, you had two sides polarizing basically, you know, on where they were with politics. And, you know, Tony well, Fauci I mean, is an incredible I, controversial figure, but it's not like he's in charge of anything. All his agency does is hand out money. Right. He's uh, not the general uh, in, in charge of our response. He was just an advisor to the White House, but he became hated because he was the only person who would contradict the president. 
Well, just on the in terms of the uh, cleavage in the country over the lockdown response, I can tell you uh, firsthand that a lot of the people that were most upset about the prolonged uh, closing of schools were as left wing and as Trump hating as can be. I can guarantee you that's I that's totally agree. Uh, but, but, but the closing of the schools is a completely different matter from the initial closing. Uh, of the understood. Country, understood. Mind. And you got to come and back. The schools, this, was a lot of it was union. Uh, but, oh, I, yeah, that that is for sure. All right. Um, you got to come back because there's a lot of other areas that I wanted to get into that we haven't had a chance. But I want to ask you about one idea that you uh, that you raise in the book as sort of one of your prescriptions for how to handle the next pandemic a bit better. You say that, um, that we should recruit witch doctors into the medical system. <laughs> what are you yes. talking about? Well, okay. So this is not a this is not something that I'm talking about for the United States. I mean, I, 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 there are many chapters about many things going on around the world that I think we ought to do. And but I, I've been a reporter in 60 different countries, and what I see in countries in Africa, and, and in countries in Asia, and and you know, poor countries is where diseases often start. I mean, pandemics don't start in downtown New York City. They don't start in Dallas, Texas. They tend to start in you know small villages in Southeast Asia. Or in the um, you know the jungles of Cameroon and and the Democratic Republic of Congo as as both monkeypox and AIDS did, um, and they come here. And my argument about witch doctors, um, who it's actually it's a rude term, but I mean traditional healers. Um, my argument is, look, there are many more traditional healers in those parts of the world than there are people with MDs or RNs, and they are often the front line for people who get some sort of medical care. The ones I've interviewed, and, and I've interviewed a lot, and I've you know spent the night in their huts and things like that, um, have always been smart, respected um, members of their local community, often open-minded, um, and willing to work with doctors, but they often find that doctors are disdainful of them. And my feeling is like, look, these people are the eyes and ears of what ought to be a sentinel system. They know what diseases are common in their communities or which ones are not. We ought to partner with them, Interesting. offer them training, offer them a little bit of a subsidy, and, and partly to say, look, when something you can't handle, when something you've never seen before comes along, would you give us a call? You know, would you, you know, don't just have the patient lie on the floor until they die. Uh, don't have the, you know, or, or pass it on to somebody else, as, as happens with Ebola. Uh, you know, have, you know, raise the alarm in some way. Go to the local radio station or make sure the patient comes to the local clinic and say, you know, or, or you know, call some doctor I know. Donald, People, you I, know, every which doctor I've ever met has a cell phone. <laughs> I'm going to have to end it there. That, that's one of the many fascinating things that come out of the book. Uh, the book's called The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Uh, Donald, thanks again. I really miss reading you in the uh, in the New York Times. Thank you very much. And you can read me on Medium if you like. I hope you enjoyed the book. There you Thank go. You. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. And as Donald mentioned there, he is on Medium. So just type Donald McNeil Medium. It comes right up. Or just go to Medium.com and search Donald McNeil. You can read his column there. All right. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.